Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our webinar on Digital Identity is More Important Than Digital Money or Digital Assets. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion today on one of our favourite subjects at Future of Finance. Since we last visited this area just over five months ago, the UK government, the people who brought you Gov.UK Verify, the eight-year-old failed digital identity scheme that took three years to appear, had minimal take-up, got savaged by the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee, and was then successively knocked over and then reprieved by a horde of pandemic welfare claimants, has published a digital identity and attributes trust framework. One of the things we'll be talking about today is whether the UK government has learned anything from its initial experience and what they might learn from more successful experiments elsewhere. But the importance of digital identity, its centrality to everything everybody is trying to do to modernize every part of every economy, not just in financial services, cannot be overstated. Last month, the UK government also published the Khalifa Review of UK FinTech. It rightly says that digital identity is one of two areas. The other is data standards, which provides what the report calls foundational public infrastructure for the digital age. Who could disagree with that? Digital identity and open data are two sides of the same coin. Each is ultimately, without the other, useless. So our real subject today is why something as crucial as digital identities has not yet happened, not just here, but in the United States and plenty of other advanced economies as well. Uh, what are the obstacles, the technical, the commercial, the political, the educational, uh, which need to be cleared? What can we learn from countries that do have uh, digital identity schemes in place? And to help us find answers, I'm joined by four people eager not just to see digital IDs progress, but each of whom is deeply aware of the wider implications of digital IDs. Richard Mayton is an independent advisor, executive board member for the International RegTech Association and founder of the Financial Institution Innovation Network. He concentrates his efforts at the point where policymakers, regulators, financial services companies and technology firms intersect with the goal of facilitating and delivering digital optimization. Akeem Prabdil is Managing Director of Fifth Nine, a consulting business whose stated mission is to use digital technology to drive business disruption in telecoms, IT, aerospace and fintech by turning good ideas into reality. Harry Weber Brown is Digital Innovation Director at the Investing and Saving Alliance, TISA, which is a consumer-focused financial services body that undertakes strategic policy and digital work to improve the financial well-being of UK consumers. Tizer is, among other things, leading the development of a digital identity scheme for financial services, and Harry leads the Tizer Digital ID project. Stefan Wolf is CEO at the Global Legal Entity Identifier Foundation, GLIF, which was set up by the G20 and the FSB in 2014 to support the implementation of the Legal Entity Identifier, the LEI, the natural starting point of corporate digital identities and indeed of open data as a facilitator for users of those identities. Glyph has also pioneered the verifiable credentials and digital certificates that bind LEIs cryptographically to corporate entities. Now, as always, in addition to our panelists, we also have you, our audience, we want your questions, we want your comments. So send them, keep sending them throughout using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. Uh, we won't save them up to the end, we'll answer them as we go along, so you will be, if you choose to be, uh, an integral part of our discussion this afternoon. Now, I'd like to begin, really, by getting something off my chest. I'd like to express my frustration, because the benefits of digital identities are very well established, they're very obvious, they save time, they save money for both consumers and for corporates, they can onboard their clients more quickly, they'll have less fraud, we all get more competition, more innovation, and we wouldn't even need the ridiculous national census, which those of us in Britain have just completed on a pain of a thousand pound fine. We're still using, yes, we're still using a Victorian technology to find out who lives where, what educational qualifications they have and what gender they are. Now, digital identity is something regulators want. FATF says so, the World Economic Forum says so, GLIF exists to develop it. And even if regulators didn't want uh, digital identities, we'd still want it for ourselves. If we're going to reinvent and reboot our economies. They haven't grown properly for 40 years. We need to digitize them. And digital IDs are absolutely crucial to digitization. After all, economies grow because transactions are being done and digital IDs solve the problem of doing digital transactions. They solve that problem of trust, the problem which SWIFT solves every day quite well 
in cross-border payments using a 20th century technology, but at extremely high cost. It's the problem which banks try to solve every day, not very well, using 19th century technology of shuffling through official documents looking for fakes. That problem is, is this person who they say they are? So my question is, to all of our panelists to start with is, why don't we have digital IDs already, especially in North America and uh, Western Europe? Is it because people don't understand what they are? Is it because governments and civil services departments are useless at creating them? Is it because the private sector is useless at creating them? Is it because we're going about this in completely the wrong way by collaborating rather than competing? Is it because there are vested interests in the shape of banks or the fangs? Is it because digital IDs are seen as something purely over there uh, for fintech people, so if you don't have a beard and over the age of 30, it isn't relevant to you. Is it because we talk about digital IDs as a general purpose technology rather than trying to focus on it as application specific industry by industry? So having got that off my chest, um, Richard, perhaps I could come to you first. Can you please help me understand why I should not be as frustrated as I am at the lack of progress in digital identity? Uh, yeah, thank you very much, um, Dominic. And I, I think you should be um, frustrated um, by the, the complexity um, of the challenge and, and the opportunity. I mean, there's a bit of context for my response is that one, one of the things I've been working on the last few years is um, ongoing work around best practices and based on examples, implementation of digital identity systems. And I think all of those challenges you, you mentioned have come through in our research and looking at markets where there's been successful implementation. And I, you know, I think we do have to clearly look at uh, markets like India, Singapore, where they have national identity systems that have made huge improvements for their population, their businesses, and that trust environment um, that you mentioned. But also, you know, we looked at uh, the US, uh, we looked at the UK um, and other European countries where progress has been much slower. I mean, I would say to your response, you know, why don't we have digital identities? Well, we do have digital identities. We, ha we have, you know, our attributes connected to us that we use all the time online and services. I think the, I think the issue, and this points to the recommendations of the Khalifa review is the most you know, recent example, plus also the uh, trust framework um, uh, proposals um, from the UK government is that there's a recognition that this should this is infrastructure, um, uh, this is foundational, um, and those benefits are huge potentially, and we see evidence from other markets, but it is complex and it and it does point and it does point to the issues of that you raise, which is um, how do you define that usage use case and do that in a complex regulatory environment? So um, we, we found there were sort of three key issues. So one is that an holistic policy approach um, to, a, to a kind of foundational approach to identity, um, the governance and trust frameworks that are required to design and deliver those, but also some fundamental challenges which we see in different delivery approaches, which is one, the liability models around that when something goes wrong and also the commercial model so if this is a national government designed and delivered scheme that's one thing but if you're looking for a market-based solution uh, which is typically the approach you see in the us and and the uk that can cause all sorts of challenges um, by design right so the fragmentation of approaches um, and the lack of necessarily government government regulatory engagement around the right areas. And so um, I think that's what's happened um, broadly. And that's why there's been fragmentation and not a strategic approach. But I think the good news is, is that we see recognition of that by government. And we do see that reflected in the UK government's approach. And, and actually in the US, we see the US Treasury um, taking a proactive lead um, to work federally um, to try and tackle these issues um, in the in the US in an even more augmented uh, regulatory environment um, than we have in the UK. Thanks, Richard. Um, and we'll come back to, to your, your comments about the regulatory environment being both complex and unhelpful at the same time, the market approach being wrong. Yakin, you're in the business of, of turning good ideas into, into reality. What's your... Uh, um, understanding of, of why we've got ourselves into this 
um, status, uh, unable, simply unable to make progress. We, 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 yeah, thank you. So I think, uh, I think we've got a lock-in. The fundamental problem that we've got is we are trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. That the nature of the legal frameworks, the regulatories and the policies did not consider the doctrines of digital identity when they were born. So fundamentally, if we try to shoehorn the capability sets that we are talking about, the use cases, the journeys that people, things, and, and, and ownership will transfer using digital identities, the current policies need to change. Or we need to start again and understand what digital identity really means and go through a clean sweep. And, and in, a, in, a, in an isolated view, we've seen that happen with GDPR. It's been a bit of a major overhaul of privacy across Europe. But it cleaned up a lot of the uh, gray areas of understanding it. And I think that is what's required in the digital identity space. Now, what we have seen at a smaller microcosm of private enterprise is that they aren't following the rules. They are effectively building it for a specific use case that delivers business value. So their credible motivation here is to add value to their customers, or in some cases, the customer's customer. And they follow a digital identity philosophy that isn't bound by a regulation. In a sense, it is proprietary. They fulfill some sort of interoperability models. They claim that they will effectively connect to other capability sets and interoperate and play nicely with others. But the reality is that you're finding pockets of capabilities being formed, driven and fueled by the very use cases, the problem statements that they are aimed to solve. Um, thanks, Joachim. Uh, 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 We're starting to get questions coming in already, and I'm, I'm going to throw those at you um, very soon. Um, but I'd like to give um, Stefan and, and Harry a, a chance to say something, and, and perhaps come to you first, Harry. We, we've heard Richard say that, that we have a complex but unhelpful uh, official environment. You've heard Joachim say that you've got a lot of vendors working in this area, but they're obviously working proprietarily, not with a holistic uh, solution in mind, looking to help their customers. Um, why do you think you've been working on, on digital entity for some time? Indeed, Tizer has been at this for many years now, um, adopting a collaborative approach. Uh, why, why are we stuck? I, don't, I disagree. I don't think we're stuck. I think there is movement in the market. I think it's been very slow to pick up. I think financial service providers are, many of them, not all, are quite confused because there's a lot of noise in the market. There's lots of you know, there are vendors out there selling identity verification tools, you know, doing selfie matching against passports, etc. Um, <clears throat> and then there's, there's initiatives like R1 and, and other work that's going on in places like uh, Pay UK and, and UK Finance. And I think, I think, you know, for many of the financial service providers that we work with and have spoken to are not part of our programme, they don't really know where to sort of follow. They don't know which, you know, because there's so much noise in the market. Everyone's saying, we need to get it done, we need to get it done, we need to get it done. And I think the, the, the approach we've taken is it's, it's, it's a slow burn because it is, as Rich quite rightly said, it's very complex. You know, you've, got, you've got regulation, you've got existing technology systems, you've got standards, you've got all, you know, law and regulation and everything all sort of blended together. And it could just look like a, an insurmountable hurdle. But so we've worked very sort of progressively at just picking off individual issues that we need to focus on and then getting on to the next one working in a very sort of systematic sort of you know agile way as opposed to trying to sort of build something really massive um, and then publish it out there and push it out there um, I think you also the other problem we've got or an issue I mean it's not, again it's not insurmountable is there is inertia in the system because financial services already have pretty robust onboarding processes to go through KYC and they're all slightly different they follow a sort of common theme you know, to meet the regulations, to meet the joint money laundering steering groups guidance, you know, et cetera. But they all, they all apply slightly different ways, you know, to a risk-based approach as opposed to a standards-based approach. So, so, you know, and that takes a lot of legwork and a lot of, you know, going in and effectively it's kind of educating people as to why this, a federated identity, as opposed to just a single identity, federated identity scheme, we would provide a lot better onboarding um, uh, processes for consumers, save money you know etc etc so it is it is it is and also because financial services are so big and so you know um quite very mature in the uk compared to maybe the nordics where there's i can't remember how many banks we have bank id who came over and did a session with us around their um you know uh, identity scheme 
the, you know, the thing is, <clears throat> ours is much, much more complex. It's much bigger and it's international. Um, but it's not insurmountable. I, I feel very positive. I think positive about you know, the work the government's doing, which we're working very closely with, uh, very, very positive about all the right signals around there saying we need to do this. Uh, but also, most importantly, and back to this lot of noise in the market, lots of different things, people trying to sort of focus on, to Yakin's point, lots of pockets of interest going on. That is starting to align now. And I just came off a call just before joining this, which is effectively um, uh, run out of F Data and OIX and UK Finance, which is trying to bring all of everybody, everybody who's interested in this together to bring them up to a base level of understanding of what digital identity is and also look at making sure that we're all working to a common end state. Because if, if you've got a number of different people trying to provision schemes, you know, for financial services, then, you know, is it Betamax, VHS, you know, and as a financial service with a fairly robust onboarding, I will just sit back and I'll wait and see what happens and see whether there's a clear market winner. But I think now that, you know, we are all going to work towards a common standard, a common approach, and all providing different parts of this sort of three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, I think that will really help galvanize it. So I'm very positive about it. But it, you know, it's it's a, it's a big mountain to climb. But I'm looking at it as a number of little speed bumps as opposed to uh, sort of you know um, Everest. Uh, th thanks, sorry. Could I and, and I want to bring Stefan in in a minute. But I'd just like to ask you something. I, I read this week the 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 UK government's trust framework. Now a third of that was devoted to compliance with existing regulations and standards. Only thirty different standards in there you you had to to comply with. As you, you've mentioned, uh, a number of organisations involved in this, um, you know, it's a cabinet office, there's a department for culture, media and sport, there's a digital identity strategy board, there's a digital economy task force, there's Companies House, there's the Bank of England, there's Innovate Finance, there's UK Finance, there's Pay UK, and probably many more that you know of. I mean, how can we, in the Khalifa review, he says, well, there's so many people involved, we're going to end up with different standards for corporates and for, and for individuals. My concern is we're not going to get anywhere at all. I mean, if you look at this, uh, this framework, one third of it given over to compliance concerns, existing compliance concerns, you know, the only people who are ever going to be able to comply with that are very large existing incumbents like banks and very large companies. They're the only people who can become identity service providers, but only they will have the means to, to comply with that. Do you, do you not, are you still a believer in the collaborative approach? Do you still think it can work? I hear what you said about mm. picking off problems one by one, but there seems to be an awful lot of people here to collaborate, an awful lot of coordination has to go on and you kind of just disappear in an endless game of snakes and ladders, do you not? Yeah, I mean, hopefully more ladders than snakes. I mean, I think there is certainly um, a feeling within government and having worked on it for about two and a half years, um, <clears throat> there's been a change of government, there's been change of ministers, change of officials, change of strategy, change of direction, uh, you know, cha change of... Um, uh, Good change, progressive change. We're going to get things done now. The government's now, now I think, you know, certainly with Minister Warman um, in, in charge of digital infrastructure uh, and, a, and a renewed sort of um, focus on building, uh, you know, building back, building better, levelling off, you know, trying to make sure the economy, you know, um, is, is, is building up. Um, they realise that actually digital ID is a key part of infrastructure, as, as, as quite, I think is absolutely right. And I think government is working through their trust framework systematically. So what you see at the moment, which is sort of alpha one and alpha two should be out in the summer, is just a first step in you know, picking off three areas around certification, regulation, etc. Uh, but there's a whole lot more of it's got to flow out of it. And I think you know, if, if, if the government's taking the lead on the trust framework, and then it certifies schemes such as the Tizer scheme and such as a home buying scheme, which is being developed. And that, I, I think that's a good thing because it gives the trust, the, you know, the, the other critical thing which I didn't mention is obviously the trust side of things. You know, why would I trust this approach over and above my existing approach? You know, and if you've got the government sitting behind it, you know, for all its uh, good, uh, you know, good and bad policies, this I think is a good one because I think it's very determined to try and get this out you know, this year and, and, and certify schemes like ours and others to be able to work towards a common standard. So me as a consumer, let's bring it always back to the consumer, you know, I can have a single identity which I could use across multiple different um, service sectors. So I don't just use it for opening a bank account because I'm only gonna do that like two or three times in my lifetime. Um, I want to be able to use it for age verification at till points. I want to use it for, you know, uh, second factor to, you know, for, for payments or uh, change of address across multiple providers. You know, there's a whole, whole host of things. And I think, sorry, just I will stop talking. The other thing that's held it back is really defining kind of what is the user 
demand and and benefit and that's one of the key things that we're focusing on you know what you won't jump out of bed on the wet thursday morning and think oh i'm gonna set up a digital identity today it's going to be tied to something you know that's going to make your life better yeah and no one jumped out of bed to get a uk gov verify one until they found they couldn't get their universal credit without it so benefit is crucial um uh, i'm very keen to get on with some questions but stefan i'd like to bring you in because you um we've been very uk specific here you're you're heading a global project you're pioneering uh, corporate digital identities in, in a way. Um, how frustrated do you think I should be? I might give you an unexpected answer. Uh -huh. um, I think we're already, we're already down in a very detailed expert discussion, but if you bootstrap, if you, if you look at it from a 10,000 feet perspective, then you will find that digital identity is a reality everywhere. Everywhere. You go to the supermarket, you display your, um, your credit card and the money gets drawn from your bank account. How is that possible without knowing who you are? Um, you take your Corona app and you go into a restaurant and you create a barcode or, or, or QR code and they know exactly who you are to report that back. Um, and many other examples. Um, we have the Apple ID, the Google ID, the Amazon ID. All the big tech firms have huge identification systems. The problem is not digital identity per se. I mean, crypto is out for 20 years. This is not a new thing. The problem is that we don't have a common way of referencing identity. So each platform, each country, everyone does it differently. So you might get, and you, sorry, excuse, excuse this comment. The UK never, could never agree on an ID card. How can you agree on a digital identity for individuals? Right, And if you have a UK-wide digital identity for an individual, how could you use this in the next country? So we, we, we face a situation that the technology is out there and used in multiple fashions, but not in a way um, that we can use it seamlessly uh, among all the platforms and all the processes and, and all the things that we want to do. And I think that leads to the self-sovereign identity discussion that we're going to have later on. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The UK government is very clear in its trust framework that this is not national identity cards by the back door. They were an unpopular idea. You're right. You have to say that. <laughs> I admit it. But look, the, the, the UK regulation is a spin-off of the EIDAS regulation in Europe uh, in the, in the post-Brexit time. Um, it, is, it is very much alike. And Canada and other countries try to do the same thing. So, um, But still, it's, it's an ID that might not be usable in other countries. And they're stuck as well. Anyway, I'd like to, to bring in some of our audience now um, with their questions. Um, Dan Feeney says, uh, the US state of Florida just flatly refused to take on board the vaccine passport ideas from Washington. There seems to be no interest from a polarized side of the politics. Is this just about privacy concerns and lack of trust in institutions in the West? I mean, that's a, that's a real question that is, you know, how willing are We've just been talking, Stefan, about uh, about the UK citizens' distrust of national identity cards, a significant proportion of them anyway. Um, and they've had this ongoing terrible experience with the fangs for quite a long time now. There's a general decay of trust in large corporations and in large governments as well. So uh, the question Dan is asking is, you know, how can we have digital identities with all the benefits whilst also um, satisfying privacy and security concerns on the part of, of consumers. Is there a, um, Richard, is there a good answer to that? Uh, yeah, well, there's a good, there's a good answer that, 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 that privacy and security concerns are fundamental in designer systems um, with controls around those. Um, and, and you see that reflected in um, standards around, um, or, you know, or standards of, of, um, assurance that are required for different use cases. And I think that's um, how you know, holistically we have to think about design Um And from a technology perspective, you know, one of the, um, you know, where the world has changed is, you know, and, and Stefan, absolutely, and it's what I said, we, we have digital identity, right? So it's not only fragmented, but that fragmentation causes all sorts of challenges and, and issues with leakages of my information and more risk, right? And, and by having um, some design principles of this framework, um, that helps to mitigate those. I think the issue, though, you know, is beyond technology is really around 
around kind of what level of detail am I willing to share, you know, through 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 a scheme. And when you get to healthcare data, that's you know pretty much as sensitive as it is, right? Um, and am I willing to use the certificate at all, regardless of the technology of the purpose? And I think that's probably um, as much the issue, right, around um, certificates for vaccinations or any health issue. Um, is an answer to this question, um, uh, and maybe, Yakin, you might have a view on this as well, um, uh, not having a, a single identity, which is either kept in a central place by some service provider, an ISP or others, but actually you put together identities, as Stefan was describing, we all have dozens of identities all over the place with different companies, but you want to uh, um, prove you who you are for some particular purpose, if it's getting a passport or um, proving you've had a vaccination, uh, can you not assemble the data from, from different uh, data sources? This is a dis decentralized, distributed uh, idea of, of, of a digital identity. Is that technically possible, uh, Yakin? Well, I'll, I'll answer the question a different way. Our embodiment of uh, the very same problem statement that Richard has mentioned is actually to use the concept of profiles. So my profile is not one and all and sundry that I present to HMRC, that I present to the NHS, or for that matter, that I present on a website to purchase some goods. So the concept of that profile and that decentralized profile and how I manage the permissions on that profile becomes multidimensional. And, and hence trust becomes super important in this federated view of understanding what is identity, what identity, persona, or profile am I presenting? And if that consensus on the other side of that server, whether it's decentralized or centralized, looks at it and says, is that enough information for me to make a conscious decision that allows me to conduct this transaction with the acceptable level of risk? Then that is the smart capabilities we are looking for. Now, in terms of those profiles, one needs to understand what are those datagrams? What are these data models? How can I shape my persona to reflect uh, not just know, you know KYC, but know my profile or even know my thing? Because my profile, my persona may extend to inanimate objects that I want to distribute and decentralize my ability to make decisions, like my car, like my solar panels, like my laptop, like my smartwatch. So the concept of this digital identity isn't actually so much a, an e-credit card or an e-card like the student ID e-card that's been going on in the, UK, uh, in the EU. But I, I can see it as, as a virtual uh, digital twin of myself that is presented to the persona that is asking for it. And I have the rights and the controls and the trust mechanisms to present what I want to present to it. And that is the data that that is the utopia of this data centric model. Funny, you can it puts me in 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 mind of um, Vaclav Havel's description of living in a communist state where you have one personality at the office, the second personality with your with your wife, a third personality with other members of your family, a fourth one with your children, a sixth one with your friends down the pub. So you, this is a a, a, a more agreeable version of that in which you have different profiles for for different needs. It's uh, it's what I was describing. Yeah. That's interesting, thank you. Um, James Zorab has a question for you, Richard. Um, if the UK recognizes that digital identity is necessary to market infrastructure, why, as you say, are they promoting a commercial approach? I think you said, Richard, that actually the market approach is part of the problem here. And we need to go down a sort of Indian uh, or Estonian uh, route of... Well, I, not necessarily, I mean, it's, it causes problems with, with everything. I mean, Harry, you know, ex explained the, the amount of fragmentation out there. Um, and I'm not, and so yes, it's simple. If you say the government's going to do this design and deliver it, that's great. Um, you know, does that always work? Not always, because there's examples um, out there in some markets where you've had very you know, small, digitally you know native governments that have brought industry together, driven it, and initiatives have failed because it's been too top down, too heavy, hasn't been driven by consumer need and market needs so it's it's that combination and i think that's so what's what's really 
positive about the approach that Harry describes is that's driven by consumer desire, desire and need. You, you've got to have the balance, right? Um, you know, and, and so would a would a market led approach end up with something that looks like a market based utility? You know, and that be that could be philosophical, but there's some practical mm. issues around that. Just want so I want to come back on one. Um, thing about technology dominic because i just want to mention one so there's great interest in in privacy enhancing technology so techniques such as zero knowledge proof where you don't exchange information you you exchange a computation on whether you have the right information so for my health care certificate what they want to know is if have, have you had two covid vaccines right and you, and you just want a yes or no answer and there's a computation and no information is exchanged but the the computation is exchanged between two systems and and so as you look at that and and particularly financial services um there's been a lot of work in the innovation functions between financial services regulators and privacy regulators about are those ad- adequate type solutions there's an issue about scale of those and cost of those and also the issues but um, that that's definitely an area of, of of growing promise in terms of solving some of those privacy um, issues. Well, I'd definitely like to come back to the, to the technical side of this. And Stefan mentioned the self-sovereign identities, for example, which I think yeah. we, should, we should linger on a bit. But there's a question from, from Adriana Enab here, uh, which I think, Stefan, you could probably best place to address. Does the panel think we can hope for globally interoperable digital IDs, like a passport that's accepted in every country with additional levels of security as required, visas, et cetera? Uh, realizing it's important to start locally, this does not preclude working to plug and play with other digital IDs as people don't only transact locally anymore. And she's absolutely right. We, we all do business across borders all the time, even in our, our ordinary lives of buying goods all over the world um, through Amazon and other uh, marketplaces. So, uh, Stefan, would I be right to think you're a bit skeptical about how we, whether we can get to an, a genuine globally interoperable digital ID um, in our lifetimes? Many, many years ago, there was a standard uh, introduced by ITU, which is a telecom standards body uh, called the X509 standard for digital certificates. Um, that is a standard that's out for many years. But when you look at the implementation in each country, then they all added a little field here, a little uh, little type thing there so that they're not um, interoperable with each other. So even even when using technical standards, it's not guaranteed to do that. And what is the reason for that? And I would like to give you an explanation um, that I've come across many times in the past five years, uh, mainly through blockchain projects and all kinds of consortia that were built to address KYC and all these kinds of things. I do not believe personally that this is a technological issue. I believe it's a governance issue. You know, nothing is more complex to run a joint venture, but when you look at these kinds of systems and all of a sudden you have so many parties around the table and they all have to agree to the same governance framework. Um, And uh, if it comes to countries, uh, you see how complicated it is for countries to agree on anything at the moment. So how could they agree on a general governance framework for identity? The only one that I'm aware of that works quite well is the passport, the international passport. So obviously the world has agreed on a document that you can use for travel, Um, but the passport lacks, for instance, your personal address, right? So uh, it it is not sufficient. So I believe um, we we need to look at it from a governance side. And this is where my organization um, has a very outstanding role, maybe the only one. I mean, we're not a company, we're not selling anything, but since we have the mandate from the global regulators um, to provide an identity for, for legal entities, like a registry, um, the thought was very clear that we could also provide a digital identity for legal entities because we have a governance framework in place that is recognized and accepted by the G20. And uh, that gives me hope that at least for legal entities, we, we might be able to deliver something meaningful in a short while. Dan, Dan Feeney has made an interesting comment here. He says the UK just spent up to a billion pounds uh, on the open banking implementation entity. The banks treated it as a PSD2 PSD compliance exercise. And now the entity is becoming a trade body. We're a long way off uh, open finance without a consumer data right regime like Australia. He's not, Dan is not saying this, but he's, he's indicating that the banks have an endless capacity to absorb the best ideas and uh, kick them to death quietly um, by, in effect, taking them over. Um, 
is is that a uh, I'm editorializing somewhat here, but but Harry, you, you work with the banks all the time on, on digital identity. Uh, you're very familiar with the Open Banking Initiative in in the UK. Um, is Dan's rather cynical observation um, correct? Um, hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, I think we have to look at what is happening, uh, and I'm sure many of your uh, people on the on the call today would have responded to the CMA's order, sorry, the CMA's um, uh, future of open banking, you know, what's what's going to be the, the next entity, etc. Um, I think for open finance to exist, it does need a digital identity. I think realistically, you can't work on an open banking model where you have to be in a kind of logged in state and exchange tokens between two accounts, because if you want to really unleash open finance, and it's not just, it's not just open finance, it's called open data, because it straddles more than the financial services yeah. industry. You know, you need to have a common authorization layer, which I think digital identity would kind of provide, you know, it kind of unlocks the data subject to the consumer's consent. You issue, uh, for example, the pension finder service, the authorization to go and retrieve all your information. So unlock that data from your 10 pension uh, uh, providers. Um, I don't know whether we necessarily need to extend it to a consumer data right per se. I mean, I think there is certainly probably, um, we do need to update GDPR. Um, and a lot of the questions in the FCA's um, open um, finance call for input was looking at, you know, is, is the current regulation legislation kind of fit for purpose? And I think a lot of the views were back, I'm not saying it was the ties of view, but a lot of views back were these, these, these types of regulations and legislation does need to be updated. A consumer data right might be one way of doing that, you know, and I think certainly critically for us in our program, we're looking very much at putting more data and control in the hands of the consumer. So they've got redress, they can see where their information has been shared to, they've got the, 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 the right to uh, retract consent, all those sorts of things. So you're kind of, you're moving into a consumer data right, but I'm not sure whether you would absolutely, it's absolutely necessary to have one for open finance to exist. I think you need, a, I, I do think you, you need um, a digital identity scheme across providers, because otherwise you're gonna to have to log into all your accounts and each 90 days you're gonna to have to re-authenticate and you're gonna, you know, it's just gonna be really fiddly. Any barriers you put up in front of the consumer is just, it's just gonna make it less likely to succeed. I push you on this, Harry. You know, it's pretty obvious that the banks have been holding up open banking. It's not in their interest. They've pleaded client privacy and confidentiality and so on. A lot of the app providers are finding it very difficult to, to make open banking work as a, as a result. Do you feel that the banks involved in your project are actually committed to digital identities? Um, it's re that's a really interesting point. I think they are because I think they can see that is going to happen with or without them. You don't necessarily need to have the banks. I think the banks obviously know a huge amount about us. You know, we have a long history of relationship with them, a lot of activity. But the, the, the truth is, Dominic, they probably wouldn't have done a KYC check on any of us since our parents probably walked us into branch and presented a passport when we were about to go off to university. You know, so the data they hold won't necessarily be held at a level that would be required to open another account. So the banks, I think, are interested in so far as not only as a receiving or relying party to consume identity, one, one possible, they don't want to be just passive receptors. But I think look at what happened with Barclays and where Barclays went, you know, obviously, you know, it, it's no longer an IDP in um, uh, gov.uk verify but it does have an identity service. And you, know, you look at the value-added services you can build on top of an identity infrastructure. So if you're a bank like Barclays and you want to bring information into your environment so the consumer never actually leaves the Barclays environment, you can use an identity, digital identity to do that. So you could bring in the best deals from money supermarkets you know, or the best pension funds in. And the identity will then unlock those data, unlock those data sources to be brought in. So I think the banks are looking at it um, from both the um, uh, relying party model, and not all, but many of them are also looking at it from the identity provision. And it's not just the full identity package, it could be just, um, you know, a surety around um, credentials, you know, does, does Dominic live at number one high lever lane? Yes, he does. And, you know, the bank can provision that information out to third party. So it's kind of an attribute exchange as opposed to a full identity. So there is a motivation in the banks. 
The difficulty back to inertia is there are existing ways of doing things which are hard to break uh, away from. And it takes obviously, you know, a, a very um, uh, uh, brave CTO to completely change the whole banking infrastructure. Uh, and obviously needs to convince the board. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, and also the banks are very complex, you know, and again, this is, you know, looking at the Nordics, you know, it's a simpler environment, fewer banks, smaller organizations, you know, one of the one of the key things for us as an organization is to know which part of the bank to go into, because you might be talking to the, totally the, the wrong part of the bank, you know, they may be looking at the part of the bank that wants to provision identity as opposed to the one that wants to consume it. So I think there's a real knack in knowing where to ask the right questions to the right person in a bank. Yeah. Well, that's come back to that as the question of banks as, as ISPs in a minute, but we deal with some of the other comments and questions from, from the audience first. Um, because it gets us into the technical side of this. James Orob says to the panel, when a service wants to verify me, how do they check the integrity of the documents and credentials I provide at the point of enrollment? In other words, there's a kind of infinite regress here where who could you trust at every stage in the checking process? It's a, it's a good question. Um, Donald Cardinal asks, uh, should we separate the efforts towards individual IDs and organizational IDs, by which I assume he means corporate IDs, uh, IG, are the market needs and risks fundamentally different enough that they actually need different schemes? So he's wondering if um, the Khalifa report is worrying unnecessarily that we get different rules for these two schemes, perhaps we need them. Um, Dan Feeney makes an observation which is close to my heart. Um, why can't SWIFT do a global ID distributed by the financial institutions? There are non-profit cooperatives, so the commercial issue should be muted. Um, perhaps we could, um, Stefan, you could think about that. But just staying with the with the uh, with the technical issues, uh, Nat says, says federalizing identity data seems to be a recipe for disaster. If the consumer is expected to have to develop trust in multiple entities, they simply won't. You need a single or very few well-recognized and trusted entities to act as custodians of the evidence that makes up our identities. The only tech firm I trust with my personal data is Apple. That's how identity goes digital. Overwhelming familiarity and trust. So those questions bring us to the question of technical model here. You know, we've kind of assumed that identity service provider model, this is the UK trust framework, certainly points to this direction is the way uh, is the way forward. And then we're starting to think about, you touched on there, Harry, are the banks yet up to realizing they're the natural issuers of these things or should other organizations come into play? We've touched on federated identity. You, Harry, have said you think that's the way forward. Um, it's what I always think of as the Facebook model, which is never a particularly positive um, uh, image for it to, to have. And then I suppose there is there's the self-sovereign identity, which, which um, Stefan referred to, and uh, Joaquin's talked about having profiles which we bring together separately. Um, uh, maybe Joaquin, you could, you could kick us off on this, on this subject. We have this choice, centralized, ISPs, um, federated identity. So somebody issues this thing and you can use it across multiple uh, services. And then there's this idea of, a, of a, what I call a data net where anonymous, your profile is assembled. It's a kind of variant of what Richard was talking about with a computation taking place rather than information actually changing hands. But the, the information you need to prove your identity for that purpose is obtained anonymously without your identity needing to be proved just you know, you're the right person for that particular transaction to take place. And then there's this whole idea of self-sovereign identities, um, which I struggle to see the difference between them and, and ISP. So we have at least four different ways forward here, Yakin, or at least three and a half, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think what's super interesting is let's take a step back and let's look at FANGs. And uh, there'll be many people in the audience who probably have signed on into third-party applications using Google or Facebook. It's the buttons you cannot ignore. And those OAuth tokens and those low friction, single sign-on federated capabilities allow you to federate your way through the ecosystem of your numerous third parties without anything except in Facebook or Google I trust. They've been very successful. Whilst we would all like to argue that the very same arguments that you've presented on trust and sovereignty and where does my data reside and the, the, the ability of presenting personas all still exist. People still use these single sign-on services and these federated services today by the millions. So there's always going to be a market articulation 
for what value you're presenting. And so I don't believe there's going to be a single, single united front. In terms of presenting, whether it's completely decentralized and whether it's uh, assembled on request or whether it's tr traditional, I call it traditional in terms of a, of a blockchain type service or some sort of decentralized federation service, what difference does it make if we can't have the same minimal viable data center, data sets to be able to correspond with each other? And I think that's, that's the challenge is that if we start to understand what are the data sets and how these centralized services that may or may not use oracles to prove our value, that uh, as Harry said, I may want to use my NatWest or my HSBC uh, federation to be able to, uh, to associate myself or prove my profile or KYC for all the other raft of services. That's what Google are doing. Mm -hmm. So why should it be any different? And the question is, should there be a single homogenous solution or are we going to be swimming in a really heterogeneous lake and we just need to make peace with it and find a way to interoperate? Mm -hmm. So, so I think from a technical perspective, all the options are valid. valid. All the uh, methods that we've described are valid. Whether we then present the provenance of those methods for common consensus, for the parties who are making a decision to openly and transparently understand where that data, that attestation, that oracle or that provenance has come from for them to make a trust determination. That is the key. The key is to be able to interoperate between these things, not to hang our hats on a single technology. But what, are the, what about James Zorab's question here? How do we rely on these? And this all starts with presenting your passport and your driving license and you know your utility bill or whatever. How can you, I mean, those things are all easily faked. How can you rely? Is the, is the process broken at the outset? Maybe I can chip in here for a moment. Um, what, what are we talking about identity? Identity is usually conferred by governments. They have the right, the sovereign in each country has the right to confer identity. So you go to the government and you get your passport, you go to the government and you get your business registry number and, and all of that. So the only way of verifying and validating identity is to have a verification against those schemes. That is, uh, and that's the difference to Facebook, Apple ID, and all the others, you know, because there's no validation other than validation against the MasterCard or Visa scheme, um, which are the true identity providers these days, by the way. Um, so the governments have not agreed on what identity means to them. And we just had a discussion about the UK, and this is again around the world, which is, which is one of the obstacles. And, but even if they would, um, the governments are good in conferring identity, but they're very weak in representing identity, uh, which is a completely different task. Um, think of all the different languages and character sets, how you can express your name. If someone would present an identity to you in a language that you don't understand, the information is not useful for you. So what we're trying to do with digital identity is solving multiple issues at the same time. And maybe that's one, one, one explanation also for the complexity of what we're trying to accomplish here. While I have your attention, Stefan, could you could you explain to us? Um, you mentioned self-sovereign identity. How that differs from the ISP model? Self-sovereign identity. The, the concept is a very simple one, actually. Um, you have your identity. You have your your driving license, your ID card, your passport, whatever. And the idea is to put this on a thing like a smartphone, or for instance, or to you have an electronic version of that. And then you can present this information to somebody else in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. And Richard rightfully pointed out that there are, you know, fancy things like zero knowledge proof and other things that, you know, help us to protect our data. However, if I would present my ID to Richard, how could he trust that my ID is the right one? And that is only possible through verification against an authoritative source. Um, and that is what verifiable credentials in the SSI space are supposed to do. It's not just the link of the information to your private key, it's the co-signing by somebody else saying, I have validated this information. This information is real according to our knowledge. And as long as you trust us, you can trust the individual presenting the identity. And I think that's the difference um, in a very decentralized and, and, and federated way. I think this is the major difference to the centralized PKIs that we have today. Thanks, Stefan. Richard, before we leave the, the, the technical side, do you have you you've heard um, 
what Stefan has said, you've also heard Joaquin talk about maybe we live in this heterogeneous pool with lots of different approaches to digital identity. Have you reached a view as to whether we want a, a centralized ISP model or a distributed or a model or a federated model or a data net or a self-sovereign identity? Is, is there a preferred approach? Are you happy with the heterogeneous pool? Um, I, th I think it, uh, it comes down to I, uh, working out what are the most effective systems for those outcomes. And, and, and I, I completely agree with the points raised around um, the need for any system to work around some standards, which are which we are hard to, hard to do fine. I mean, I do I do think increasingly this is just a broader technology point to consider with any any system. If you're looking for you know le levels of assurance into and to and security and privacy to protect your your user. Um, Clearly, there are some technologies that have the potential to provide that more effectively than others. And I think what's most important is that within the governance framework around your systems, that you have an alignment between people who are responsible for that governance and design and monitoring and compliance and implementing that. There's a process of, of monitoring, effective monitoring, understanding the risk and adjustment to those risks according to your 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 usage and and that's the most important thing rather than you know do i choose this system or that system it's understanding where those systems fit into those outcomes and having a dynamic way to manage risk all those risks around the effectiveness of those outcomes um, and that's why you know we we come back to the right regular the right regulatory framework that's innovation based, um, and will and will need tools and mechanisms to kind of monitor and test that and and affect and that. I know mean, Dominic, you said you know well, the the trust framework has thirty pages of compliance. Well, it does. That's because those are important issues to the trust of the systems. You know, so so having effective fraud management systems to protect people, and technology, and there are all sorts of technologies get federated systems that can provide much more effective ways to make sure that the individual being verified is that individual through behavioral analytics um, for example um, can detect if somebody's being manipulated for money mulling um, that are in place now and and, and making a significant difference and so um, I think the technology is not just the overall system design, but it's one of those tools that we can use within that, that, that meet those, those overall objectives. And then there's a holistic view around that that's monitored um, from, from the policy to the governments to the delivery. Thank you. We're into our, unbelievably into our last um, 10 minutes or five minutes almost. Um, and I'd like to touch on, on what we can learn from other countries, uh, countries that don't have digital IDs versus those who do, but, I've got a comment here from George uh, Galisa, which takes us into that rather nicely. He says, built on Yakin's point, national identity cards need to be the starting point for any digital identity system. Uh, in the UK, most people have two forms of identity, their passport and their driving license. The issue with digital identity is not a technical challenge, it's a mindset challenge with people who will eventually use this. A lot of the work needs to go into this to make digital identity a useful success. Use cases like healthcare, eligibility, blood type, et cetera, are all useful data points which can form part of that identity. I have a national identity where I live, which has enabled the country not, only, not, not to go into lockdown, not to go into lockdown, as the data points available surrounding location, COVID status, vaccine status, the enforcement of this across society. It's quite an interesting use case as a driver for wider adoption. Mindsets, however, the consumers and users will differ in other countries. Well, I want to move to that country where they're not in lockdown. So, um, uh, George, do tell us where you are um, and we'll apply to move there. But uh, he, he, he points out that, you know, there are workable models available in other countries. So, uh, we touched on Estonia earlier, you know, it has this state-issued machine-readable digital ID card with a chip in it. Uh, it's a phone app there as well now. Um, somebody mentioned Australia. Um, I think they've had troubles a bit like ours in the UK with a limited take-up of public sector ID. Um, Canada has some UK-style trust framework in development. Uh, India, of course, has the famous ADHAR, the 12-digit the identity number, um, based on biometric data, so that's 
more along the lines George was describing. Um, in the Nordics, um, there is some variation, but the crucial thing there, and, and Harry, you know, this is, this is relevant to what you were saying about the involvement of banks, the crucial breakthrough there seemed to be that people discovered their bank digital ID could be usable for public services, whereas we've tried to go the other way and say this is usable for public services, you might be able to use it in private and it's failed. Um, Singapore, of course, has a government ID system. Uh, and you, Richard, mentioned the US, where I'm not familiar with what's going on, but you said the Treasury Department is now taking, taking a, a, a clear lead. So is there any country um, out there who we should regard as having useful lessons to apply to, um, to Europe and to the United Kingdom and to uh, the United States, since these are the three areas which seem to be, or North America, seem to be the three geographic areas with most, most limited progress here. Um, Stefan, you have a great international perspective. Um, is there a country you think has got this right? I think the, more, the most advanced scheme at the moment is the IDA scheme in Europe and the EID. Um, as a German citizen, you know, I have an ID card and a passport with a chip and I can, if, you know, a technical reader provider, I could use this to identify myself. However, the uptake of this is very low. Um, and I think that's another reason that we need to, another thing that we need to consider, the cost of change of existing IT infrastructure to, rec to, to use digital ID is, is astronomic. And uh, even the best ideas won't fly as long as people don't invest into their, into their IT systems in that fashion. Um, so there are a number of other countries like Hong Kong and Mexico and so forth. They have very strong schemes. But what I wanted to say um, to George and, and to others here, Personally, and this is my, my private opinion, if I may say so, I would not trust an identity provider that has an agenda for a commercial model, what they do with my data. See, that's, that's, that's the problem. And that might be even for countries, you know, where, where they have other interests in knowing the people very well, right? So I would trust an identity scheme that is agnostic to any use case and where people have no commercial interest or political interest in that that is my hope that you know that that we're working on also with the lei system mm -hmm. thank you Stefan. we're we're now down to our last couple of minutes so um uh, some thoughts from you harry is there a country which in your in your project you've been looking at them thinking well they've got lots of lessons which we could usefully draw on Plenty of countries, plenty of lessons. Um, I would go back to the Norway one, I think driven out because what was interesting about the uh, bank ID in Norway, at the same time, the government tried to provision an identity scheme, which eventually it gave up and it just rolled it all in, as I understand it, into the bank ID, which is now VIPs. Um, I think, uh, and it was back to a point earlier about, you know, should it be commercial? Um, I think I would, I would uh, support that. I think it does have to be commercial because I think you are much more likely to engage with commercial services on a regular basis and want to use your identity than you would necessarily for government. You know, one of the critical failings for gov.uk verify was that people only use it once a year. And by the time they come around for renewal for whatever it might be, tax returns or whatever, they'd forgotten their ID, you know, and they couldn't retrieve it. So they had to set another one up. So I would, I would, I would push out um, Norway as a really good point. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't take all the lessons from Norway and just and, and literally plant them in the UK because we're very different countries. However, I think by joining organizations together, having a common framework, a common template, and then moving it into a commercial entity, because originally it was set up as a not-for-profit, now um, is actually a commercial entity which has a, a wallet, you know, payment app, uh, everything. So you can layer it and that makes it sustainable. I think the critical thing is how do you sustain it? I think, you know, to Stefan's point, there's one thing getting it off the ground, but once you've got it off the ground, how do you make sure you've got the body to support it, to make sure the standards, the technology and everything is up to date and you are constantly fighting fraud? George, by the way, lives in, in Qatar, so Qatar, so that's uh, where we need to move to. Um, Dan Feeney says Finland, Mexico and Germany are moving very quickly into a digital uh, ID scheme, which you, you touched on, of course, um, Stefan. We're, we're, we're almost out of time here, but I'd like to hear from, um, from both Richard and, and Joachim whether they think there's a country which um, has useful 
lessons or was getting this so spectacularly right everyone should copy it Richard who would be what would be your choice uh well I mean okay so everyone will look at Estonia just because of their digital economy um but but I but I think it depends on the model you want I think there is a fundamental difference is this government identity driven or is this a is this a market driven and it, I think it depends on your philosophy and approach so but I agree with Harry about bank ID for a market driven approach I think that's a really interesting example I know a little bit about where they're going and how they add value. So I think that is a very useful model, I would think, for the UK and maybe the US as well. Um, I, yeah, I think you... I think just to consume the last 30 seconds, um, <laughs> there's a lot of models out there. Um, they tend to stem from two different factions, whether you have a single notary or whether you have a multidimensional notary. And the notaries depend on the country's regime and their political stance. If you fulfill a single notary where the government, in the government I trust, in their blockchain or their decentralized or their technology I trust, great. If you believe in a multi-notary model, which I think we've been alluding to in some of the models we've been talking about, where a portion of my uh, provenance sits with bank number one, a portion of it sits with the second bank, and so on and so forth, suddenly the makeup of my digital ID and the depth of which I am willing to share comes from multiple sources, that is a far more democratic view. And I think it will come with the political stances of various on where we take these models from. And as you can see from where these countries have launched, they've been pretty much stable politically. They've had a single unison with a single direction and a single focus without any large amount of political factions, which has allowed them to progress with the visions that they've presented. Do we have that in the UK? Questionable. How will we move forward and sustain this model? Because I think to Harry's point, he mentioned something super important, which is once I've done uh, a video ident like Germany, Stefan, you know about video ident, and, and, and suddenly I've validated myself or I've done a biometric. At 18, will that last for the next 50 years? How do I continuously update as part of my lifestyle, as part of my mindset? How do I continuously update my notaries and not just one, multiple of them, so that my relevance of my profile becomes uh, sustainable, so that I can present myself as I age, as I go through different walks of life, as I change careers, as I move through the economy and through the ecosystem. And I think that's the challenge is we can't simply take one model. We've got to look at all of them. Before we go, I'd just like to give our audience one, one thing to, to carry away, one hopeful thing to carry away, not to ask each one of you a, a single question, really. And, and Harry, could I start with you, which is you've been working on this um, UK digital ID financial service for quite a long time. When can we expect to, to see it happen? Uh, February next year. Okay, so there's a concrete date set now, February 2022, that's going to, to happen. Stefan, um, uh, looking back on the progress you've made with, with LEIs and, and the additional work you're now doing, um, when can we look forward to some, some meaningful, concrete, usable uh, uh, ideas for, for corporates and, and for counterparties of corporates? This year. In 2021? Yep. Okay. Is the same true of the EU ID, which has had this limited take up? Is that going to take off? Do you think what's the time scale for that? That? Is, that is completely independent. <laughs> right. Okay. Nothing to do with you. Um, and and Richard, looking across as you as you survey the the, the, the technological scene, um, what's your what would be your prediction for how soon we could see some just just in the UK, for example, how soon we could see some uh, a universal digital identity? Uh, <laughs> um, Prediction is hard, I know. Yeah, uh, well, I'm going to, so February, so uh, what was it, February 2022, wasn't it, Harry? Yeah. Yeah, that's financial services only. Just for financial services only? Mm. Well, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming Harry's financial services uh, will be a scheme off, uh, off, the, uh, off the trust framework, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But will that provide same thing? For, will that provide a model for other industries? Well, I think if you can do financial, if you can get financial services right, you can get a lot of other industries right, just because there's the requirements for it. Okay, yeah. so so all hopes rest on you and your scheme. Yeah. So okay. yeah, I'm back. I'm back in Harry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll have you back here um, very soon, Harry, to see how you're getting on. <laughs> um, 
And Biakin, a, a, a final word from you. Are you full of hope that we're going to have a UK digital identity scheme beyond what Harry's doing? And what sort of timescale do you expect that to happen? I, I'm a less, less of an optimist in this space. I think that within two years, we'll get something that starts to show some real legs on use cases beyond specific ones that are designed with FinTech in mind. In saying that, however, in the private sector, we're working firsthand with a lot of the big, the big Fortune 100s, and they have a, a vested interest in driving digital identities, just not for people, but also for things. And there's a real need because there's business requirements for these consortiums to start to play together in a much tighter environment. Uh-huh. Right, so big business sees the case for this. Yep and is driving it. Well, that, that is a hopeful note to end on. But there, I think we must uh, we must stop. And I'd like to thank our, our panelists, Richard Payton, Yakeen Pabdil, uh, Harry Weber-Brown and Stefan Wolf. I'd like to thank you, our audience, uh, for all your comments and your questions. It really helps and, and has contributed hugely to a very lively discussion. But for now, it's goodbye.